this is truly a Memorial Day weekend, and um, I'm honored that I was asked to, to preach here this morning and share God's Word with you, especially as it's such a historic day for First Baptist Gibsonville. Do you realize that it was 115 years ago to the day that this church was constituted with seven charter members? 115 years ago to the day. And I printed this out from y'all's church website that on the fifth Sunday in May 1896, this church was constituted. This is the fifth Sunday in May, is it not? Exactly 115 years later, the good folks, um, Mr. Ferguson, Mrs. Boone, Mr. Fogelman, Mrs. Gregg, Mr. Gregg, Mrs. Sams, and Mrs. Wagner um, with the Reverend Lane constituted this church. 115 years later, we are still gathered here. And we're not just remembering the, the soldiers that have died to protect our freedoms, but also we're remembering the way in which God has worked in Gibsonville for at least the last 115 years. And what I want to share with you this morning is how God continues to work in the world. In 1894, the folks at First Baptist of Greensboro said, you know what we need to do? We need to plant a church over for those, those hurting folks over there in Gibsonville. And then two years later, y'all got a church. And that is testimony to the way that God is continually working in the world to call out worshipers for himself from every corner of the globe. The fact that we are gathered here this morning on the Lord's Day to worship him, to sing songs of praise, to read and hear his word shows that he is at work. And I believe you're gathered here this morning because you would testify that he's been at work in your life as well. That you are one who has been radically transformed by the word of God as I would testify that I am as well. And before we get into God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord God, you are so good that you would stir in the hearts of each of us to to bring us here this morning. What reason is there for us to gather here this morning at First Baptist Gibsonville unless you have truly moved in our hearts? So let our assembly this morning be out of gratitude and thanks for the way that, that you continually love us, how you've set your love on us and how you've revealed yourself to be faithful to call out worshipers for yourself. We thank you foremost for your son, Jesus Christ, whom you gave as a sacrifice for our sins so that by faith in him we could be reconciled to you. And we thank you for this message of the gospel that has reached every corner of the world and continues to go out. We thank you that it has even found us here in Gibsonville, North Carolina in 2011. Lord, you are so good. You are so kind to us. Lord, I ask that now as we turn to your word, as we heed the words of the prophet Zephaniah, that you would help our minds to be attentive, our hearts to be soft, so that your word would not just bounce off of us, Lord, but it would penetrate to us and, and transform us for the glory of Christ by your Holy Spirit. So be with us now as we are gathered in this place for your sake. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, go ahead and turn with me, if you will, to the prophet Zephaniah. It's just a tiny book found towards the end of the Old Testament. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1463. Um, and I thought that might be good to let y'all know, so you can go ahead and be flipping there. Um, Zephaniah is considered to be one of the minor prophets. And he's not minor because he's insignificant. He's minor simply because his prophecy is much shorter than other folks, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, who have loads and loads of oracles that they received from the Lord. 
our man Zephaniah that we're going to look at this morning, he received what you might consider to be few words from the Lord. And, but I think his message has much to say for us today. So I want us to turn there. But I do want to introduce my wife and I just briefly before we get started. I am Drew Most, and my wife, my beautiful wife, Emily, is here, and we're expecting a son in August. Our daughter, Poppy, is in the nursery playing with, with Jenna. They both, would you have it, share the same birthday to the date, to the exact date, to the exact year, June 25th, 2009. How crazy is that? And in, in uh, memorial of that, Jim and I have um, similar haircuts to mark the similar birthdays. I think he's trying to outdo me, though, by by going more bald on the top, yeah. <laughs> but that's okay. We work with a group called Wycliffe Bible Translators. And you might say, what do you mean Bible Translators? It's easy to forget that unless you speak Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, the Bible must be translated for you. Like the, like the gal who was up here doing sign language just a moment ago, she was translating the Bible for folks that are deaf or, or what have you. But for us as English speakers, the Bible was not originally written in English. In fact, this year, just a couple weeks ago, we celebrated the 400th anniversary of the publication of the King James Version of the Bible. Over 400 years ago, folks that spoke English were still waiting for a copy of God's Word in a language that they understood best. Up to that point, when you gathered on the Lord's Day, you heard the Bible read not from English, but you heard it read in Latin. No nobis, no nobis. Sed nominu tuo, da gloria. Does that penetrate your heart? Does that get you? Does that get you right here? Well, that's from the prophet Isaiah, and that's from the Latin Vulgate translation that folks up to that point have been hearing. But now when we gather on the Lord's Day, we can hear, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. That penetrates your heart in a drastically different way than the Latin does, doesn't it? So Wycliffe Bible Translators has a vision of translating the Bible for everyone, every language that still needs it. And would you know that of the 7,000 languages spoken on the globe right now, there are still about 2,000 of those identified as needing a Bible translation. 2,000 languages. Folks, just like us here in Gibsonville, who are gathered, who might speak their own distinct language, who don't yet have a copy of God's Word sitting in the pew in front of them. Gathered on the Lord's Day, wanting to hear from the Lord, but when they hear the scripture read this morning, they will hear it from somebody else's language, a language like Latin, and it will have the same effect as it did to you when I recited the Latin Vulgate. So Wycliffe has a vision of translating into the heart language of people that the Bible has never been translated into before. But it's a tremendous task because these are all languages that are previously unwritten. You have to form an alphabet for them. Then you've got to teach folks to read. And then you've got to translate the Bible. And then you've got to teach folks how to use the Bible. But it's an exciting time to be involved with Wycliffe Bible Translators because God is truly at work. And we are seeing the fastest progression of Bible translation ever. My wife and I and our family, we are headed to Cameroon in West Africa, where still 130 languages await God's word in them. So we're going to be joining teams there to begin translating the Bible. Myself as a linguist lurking, working in Bible translation projects, and my wife Emily as an RN, as a nurse, um, she'll, be, she'll be volunteering there. Um, so we can not only meet people's physical needs, but also their spiritual needs. 
But let's go ahead and jump into the prophet Zephaniah. Because I don't want to just share about Bible translation with you this morning. Rather, I want to show you a big picture of what God is doing in the world. That's why I mentioned that this morning is such a historic morning for, for your church. Because it's testimony to what God is doing. In the prophet Zephaniah, we see a large vision cast for people from all over the globe to worship the Lord. And so I want to place Bible translation within that larger theme of God working in the world so that it takes on a different force than me just telling you, hey, we're doing this, hey, we're doing this. Rather, I would rather stand up before you this morning and say, God is doing this. We must join in as his people. So if you look at the very first verse of the prophet Zephaniah, it says, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, the son of Gadaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, during the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So let's get some context. What are we talking about here? We're talking about a young man named Zephaniah. His name means the Lord protects or the Lord shields. But he's, he, we note that his prophecy came during the reign of this king, Josiah. And y'all will remember from 1 Kings 22 that Josiah had been made king as a very young boy. Perhaps the same age as our gentleman back in the AV booth um, queuing up the PowerPoints. Just how old are you guys? Are you guys about 10-ish? Maybe? Are they older? How old are they? 12? 15? Okay, wow. All right. You guys are both 15? All right, that's kind of a fail. Sorry. Um, is anybody 10? How about you gentlemen? Nine. Okay, you'll work. Because Josiah, Josiah was about your age when he was made king. And this is what went down. His dad, unlike your dad, we hope, was a very wicked man. And he disobeyed the Lord constantly. In fact, during his father's reign, the, the words of the Lord, um, the first five books of the Old Testament, had been locked away and people had for completely forgotten about it. The word of the Lord hadn't been read. In fact, when the king became the king of Judah, he was supposed to copy out his own copy of God's word. Rather, during his reign, it had been locked away. Well, we don't need that. Let's just chuck that in the bin. Who cares about that? Locked it away. So what the people of the land did is they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get rid of this wicked king. So, young man, they assassinated your dad. They, they killed him. They said, we've got to get rid of this guy. And, the, and Kings tells us that the people of the land then took the young boy Josiah and made him king, just like your age. And as a, as a young boy, you know, he was guided by the priests. He was guided by, by the prophets. And it was during his reign that one of the prophets found the copy of God's word locked away in the temple. And as this young man heard the words of the Lord, he heard the covenantal stipulations that God had given the people of God, and his heart was broken. You guys have the privilege of hearing Jim preach through the Ten Commandments. Those were the stipulations that were given to the people of God. Imagine hearing those for the first time. As Jim's preaching through it, no doubt you've heard the Ten Commandments before. But imagine being a young man like our young gentleman here and hearing those words for the first time. He said, oh my goodness, we have been called to be God's people, but we've been, we've been doing nothing but disobeying him. We've been rebelling against the Lord. We've been doing things that God's people ought not do. And this happened all in the reign of our young man, Josiah, just like our young gentleman here. Into this picture enters the prophet Zephaniah. And that's where his ministry picks up. But Zephaniah, I want you to note, is a prophet of unlikely origins. Look at the name of his father, Cushi. 
That doesn't sound like a Jewish name whatsoever, does it? Now, his forefathers, that, that, they all sound like Jewish names. Son of Gadaliah, Amariah, Hezekiah, those are Jewish-sounding names. Rather, his father, Cushi, that's a name from Ethiopia. The, the land of Cush in the Old Testament was the land beyond Ethiopia. So think about our prophet Zephaniah as one being from a mixed background. And what's unique about the prophet Zephaniah is he starts out his prophecy by listing back four generations, something we find nowhere else in the prophets. And this is partly because people would look at his father's name and say, well, why does this guy think he can be a prophet of the Lord if he's not even thoroughly Jewish? What makes him think he can prophesy against us? He could because the Lord had called him to do it. And God has a habit of working through unlikely people people from unlikely origins to bring his word, to bring his message of hope and redemption, to speak through unlikely people. Now, Wycliffe, the organization with which we work, has unlikely origins as well. It was started by a young man about my age in his mid-twenties named Cameron Townsend. Cameron Townsend, like most college students, needed money. So he took off, back in the 30s is when this young man lived, in the 30s he took off selling Bibles. I guess in those days you could be a traveling Bible salesman. Not so much today with Amazon.com, you know, just, you just click, free shipping, boom. Well, back in the 30s, not so much. So he traveled as a, as a traveling Bible salesman. He wanted to go to territory that had previously been untouched. So he traveled to Central America. Arriving in Guatemala in a Ketchikel village, he was going door to door trying to, spell, trying to sell Spanish Bibles. I mean, sounds like a good thing to do, right? Go to Central America, sell Spanish Bibles? No. When he arrived in the Ketchikel village and tried to sell these Spanish Bibles, they said, what do you mean a Spanish Bible? We have no need for a Spanish Bible. We don't speak Spanish. We don't read Spanish. We don't write Spanish. We speak Ketchikel. Ketchikel is our language. Well, this young man did what most good young men do. He came back to the States, got himself a woman, and went back to Guatemala. They planted themselves among the Ketchikel people for 30 years learning their language, and eventually translating the New Testament for them. And during his time there in Guatemala, this young man, who we now refer to as Uncle Cam, gained a vision for the many more millions of people, the many more thousands of languages that are just like that Ketchikel village that had previously never had God's word in their own language. Unlikely origins. Today, Wycliffe Bible Translators has over 6,000 members, 6,000 missionaries worldwide, working to bring God's word to people who have never had it in their own language. All started with a vision of a young man in his 20s traveling through Guatemala. But my wife and I, I think, have un equally unlikely origins. I grew up in a podunk town in West Virginia. There's no reason that the, the, the Lord should stir in my heart. I think about, as a young man, tucked away in the mountains of West Virginia in Appalachia, why should the word of the Lord, why should the gospel reach me? Why should, the, why, should the, why should the Spirit penetrate my heart so that my eyes would be open so I would see the beauties of Christ? It just doesn't happen except by the grace of God. Amen. And the Lord continues to work. And I remember being at an Easter play as a young man and seeing the crucifixion portrayed and looking back at the back of the congregation and seeing them, hearing the sounds of them crucifying Jesus as a young man about, uh, I think I was about 12 years old, and my heart was broken. This Jesus was crushed for us so that we might be saved. 
Who has heard of such a thing? Who has heard of a righteous man dying for sinners? Why should that happen? It shouldn't, except for the grace of God. So I stand before you this morning as one in whose heart God has radically worked. And so I can't help but work with Wycliffe Bible translators as an expression of my gratitude for what God has done in my own life. Because I've seen how he's used his word mightily in my own heart to bring me not only to salvation, but to bring me close as a follower of Christ. And I want to give back to him by serving him, by serving people who are most overlooked in this world. Small communities, maybe about the size of Gibsonville, where people would look at them and say, well, they're just a distinct people. They speak their own language. They're not important. But we know that God cares about even the smallest groups of people. And he's passionate about saving them. Unlikely origins. But let's get back to the prophet Zephaniah. Zephaniah had a partnership with King Josiah. And it was a partnership centered around the Word of God. Now remember, I said that in the reign of of Josiah, the the book of the law was rediscovered. And as you read through the prophet Zephaniah, there are numerous parallels between the first five books of the Old Testament and his own words, such that we, we have good reason to believe that when Zephaniah prophesied, he prophesied from the book of the law. So picture it like this. All sorts of wickedness is going on in the kingdom. Josiah wants to reform the kingdom. This, this, this prophet Zephaniah comes along and says, hey, I want to help you do that. I want to help reform this kingdom. So they center around the word of God because it's what's going to change people is the word of God. Zephaniah comes alongside Josiah to empower the ministry of the word so that the people of God would be put right on the right track, that they would be called to repent and trust the Lord again. And as Wycliffe Bible translators, we very much have a partnership in mind. Missionaries with Wycliffe Bible translators rely on God to supply all their needs through God's people. That's prayer needs, financial needs, everything. Rely on God to supply those needs through His people. So this morning, I would like to propose a partnership between our ministry with Wycliffe Bible translators and First Baptist Gibsonville. However the Lord would lead you to partner with us, Together, we would see God bring his message of redemption to communities that still wait. Just like Josiah and Zephaniah, a ministry centered around the word of God, working to see lives transformed to the glory of God. But what exactly was Zephaniah's message? If you've read down a couple verses, you're probably a bit confused because as you see the first couple verses of Zephaniah, they're not pretty. It's a message of judgment for the first three chapters of Zephaniah. So go ahead and look with me. Verse 2. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? Nope. Verse 3. I will sweep away both man and beast. I will sweep away the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the idols that cause the wicked to stumble. When I destroy all mankind on the face of the earth, declares the Lord, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests, to those who, uh, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. The first part of this message is, is a message of judgment. You'll note that in the first couple verses, there's there's much resemblance to what we find in Genesis chapter 6 with the flood narrative. 
sweeping away. You can picture the waves of Genesis 6, of the flood. I will sweep away everything from the earth. God has brought judgment before on the, wor- on the world because of sin. And he's promising that he's going to do it again because of the wickedness of the people. Not the same scale as the flood, but it draws on the same imagery. And so that throughout the first couple chapters of Zephaniah, he references Assyria, which is in the north. He references Ethiopia, which is in the south. He references Moab and Ammon in the east. Then he references Philistia in the west. He's picturing a universal judgment, north, south, east, west, that is coming on everyone because of sinfulness, because of turning from the Lord. But what specifically were the sins of these people? We saw in verse 4 and verse 5 that they worshipped idols, they worshipped Baal and the Lord their God, something that ought not be done. As you read the first five books of the Old Testament, you see that God's people are called to be a people that are separate and worship only the Lord. Think of the Ten Commandments. Think of the Ten Commandments. But they were worshiping idols and God. They worshiped, in verse 5, the starry host. Think about Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. They don't call attention to themselves. Rather, much like a mirror, they cast our eyes onto the Christ whom we ought to exalt in. Not the starry host themselves. They do not draw attention to themselves, but should recast our vision to the Lord. Then if you skip down in verse 9, you see they were suffering from superstition. On that day I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. Stepping on the threshold in those days was a superstition. They thought that something bad might come upon their house if they stepped on the threshold as they crossed into their house. Is that how the people of God are to live their lives, fearing the threshold of their own homes? Or are the people of God to live in reverent fear of the Lord, knowing that He orchestrates all events to the good of those who are called according to His purposes? We trust the Lord and we don't worry about thresholds. But they were overcome with superstition, perhaps because of this absence of the Word of God that had been in their lives. Verse 12, they didn't trust the Lord. Rather, they filled in an absence of the word of the Lord in their lives with their own thinking, with their own superstition. And we have the habit of doing the same thing. As we wander from the word of the Lord, as the word of the Lord is locked away in a closet at our house, much like it was in the days of Josiah's dad, our hearts are prone to wander from the Lord as well as we disregard his word. So the prophet Zephaniah and the king Josiah bring the word of the Lord in a powerful way so that the people would be changed. Because God's word does in fact change people, does it not? There's a powerful story from the Philippines of this group called the Tabuli people. When Wycliffe translators arrived in the Tabuli village in the Philippines, they found that the little children that were playing out in the fields were scarred on their limbs, on their arms and their legs. And they were really confused. Why, why is it that all these children are scarred? And they began to talk to several people, and they found out that it was tied to the Tabuli people's belief in this life after death. And they believed that in order for one to enter the life after death, you had to cross over a bridge. But it wasn't just that simple. In order to cross over this bridge, it was guarded by an evil spirit that would push off anyone who didn't bear the light. So they thought the way in which they would give their children the light, in case they died, was by scarring them. 
So they took tiny bits of cloth, dipped it in kerosene, set it alight, and would scar their children, burning them. Translators, much like you, were deeply troubled by this. They began translating the Gospel of John. And they got to John's Gospel where Jesus identifies himself as the light of the world. And the Tabuli people, through the power of God's Word, began to see that they need not scar their children. They need not give their children the light in that way because Jesus is the light. And Jesus bears the scars. The power of God's Word to radicalize even the most hardened heart. And He is still doing it today. But amongst all this wickedness that we observe in the prophet Zephaniah, let us not think that God is absent. If you look in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, we see again the wickedness. Her prophets are unprincipled, they are treacherous people, her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law. But look at this. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no wrong. Morning by morning, he dispenses his justice. In every new day, he does not fail. Yet the unrighteous know no shame. So amidst this deep wickedness of the people, the Lord is still active, standing ready with his justice. And the people of God wait for the final day when God will restore things back to the way they ought to be. And this in the, in the scriptures is called the day of the Lord. And that's the theme of the prophet Zephaniah. And the day of the Lord is the day on which the people of God look for him to replace the current state of things with his intended order of things. Or you can think of it as Jesus prayed that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the day of the Lord brings widespread judgment. If things need set right, well, then wickedness needs punished. It brings widespread judgment, but it also brings widespread blessing and is the hope of his people that he will enact justice, that he will intervene. So as you think about this theme of the day of the Lord in the scripture, it's most fully realized at this point in history, in the day on which Christ was, was crucified, he died and, and raised again. That was the, way, the day on which God finally dealt with our sin. But we look again for, a sec for another day of the Lord to come, the second coming of Christ, when God will finally bring his kingdom in its fullness and set right everything that human sin continues to mess up. And so this is our great hope as we are gathered here this morning. But look what else is included in this hope. Skip down to verse 9, if you will, of chapter 3. Speaking of the day of the Lord, he says, Then I will purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. So what is this hope that the day of the Lord is going to bring? It's going to bring judgment that, that deals with our sin. But it brings hope as well. It brings, in verse 9, a hope that restores speech, the Hebrew says. Yours might say purify, but you could also translate this restore. It restores the speech. Why? Why would it restore speech? So that people could call on the name of the Lord. Why call on the name of the Lord? So that we, so that we could serve Him 
shoulder to shoulder. And the picture there, the Hebrew, it says, serve him shoulder to shoulder, is that we bow down together before the Lord. In our great diversity of ethnicities and people from every corner of the globe, that we gather together centered around the common Christ to worship him, despite our differences. In fact, with our differences, one translation of verse 9 translated it as, the nations will speak pure Hebrew. But I think that couldn't be farther from the truth because we don't look forward to the day when all of God's people become the same. No, we look forward to the day, we look forward to the day when the Lord will gather all of his people, that people from every corner of the earth will gather and worship the Christ and find him most lovely above all other things. And in that diversity of worshiping him, Christ is most glorified. It's not just white folks in Gibsonville that are worshiping the Lord. It's Africans in Cameroon. It's Asians in China. It's folks in Australia, in South America, Central America. Every corner of the globe, the Lord is working to bring worshipers to himself. He's restoring our speech. And that's where we see the ministry of Wycliffe Bible Translators. Speech, as you look at it throughout the narrative of Scripture, you find that speech was one of the first things that was perverted. Satan twisted the words of the Lord in the garden. He deceived Adam and Eve by twisting the words of the Lord. Then if we fast forward to Acts chapter 2, we see that God is in the process of restoring speech because on the day of Pentecost, everyone heard the message of the gospel in their own language. The theme of language runs throughout Scripture, and we see here God's promise to restore it so that folks from everywhere could call on the name of the Lord. And we see our work with Wycliffe Bible Translators working towards that same end by translating the word of God so that people could hear the gospel and be saved. Romans tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by not the word of men, but by the word of the Lord. And that word must be translated for us unless we speak Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. So we see this great hope of God. Then in verse 10, we see the extent of this hope. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. Remember that Zephaniah's father was one who was from the region of Cush. His father was Cushy, from the regions of Cush. And I, perhaps what Zephaniah is saying here, if you think I am an unlikely prophet, just watch what God is going to do. He's going to work beyond Cush. Again, 115 years later, here we are, gathered in Gibsonville at this church because of the vision that folks had at First Baptist Greensboro. God is truly working beyond the rivers of Cush to bring worshipers for himself. And God's word is finding its way to the remotest parts of the world through his church. And his word is truly transforming lives. There's a story of the Bakoko people in northern Cameroon. They make up a large people group in western Africa, in the country of Cameroon where we're going. And as translators came to the Bakoko village to work with these people to develop their language so that they might have a copy of God's word, the people resisted. They, they said, no, 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 we can't have you writing down our language. We can't have you putting our language in a book so that other people could understand it. And they were like, well, why not? Well, the Bakoko people used Nji, a form of witchcraft that was special to their language, they thought. It was so tied to their language, their witchcraft, that they didn't want anybody else to know their language because then they might have power over them by knowing their witchcraft as well. Last year, Wycliffe translators were able to present an alphabet for the Bakoko language. 
And Christians within that village saw this alphabet of the Bakoko language and they were, they, they were touched to their core because they began to see that the promise of Revelation 5 might come true for them as well. What is the promise of Revelation 5? The picture that we get in Revelation is people gathered around the throne of the Lamb from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The Bakoko people, despite their witchcraft, the promise of the gospel will come to them as well by God working to restore their speech through organizations like Wycliffe, by God's grace. So we see that Zephaniah greatly empowered the ministry of Josiah to bring the word in a powerful way to people to radically transform their lives. And I want us to look finally in closing at verses 14 through 17. Look at the marvelous way that the prophet Zephaniah ends. He says, Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, that is the day of the Lord, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves you. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Notice that in this, this section that I just read, it's not Josiah who's king, but it's the Lord who is king. And the Lord has established his son, Jesus Christ, as the king of the kingdom of heaven. And we see here that within this kingdom, it's a kingdom in which God has removed the guilt of his people who continually mess up and sin and who have a faithful king that reigns over them, Jesus Christ. He doesn't just reign over, but he rejoices with singing. As you think about your own sinfulness this morning, it's not a pleasant thought, but think about your own sinfulness. Where do you stand before a holy God? Because the truth is that none of us can stand before a holy God unless we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Unless our sins have been removed, unless our guilt has been removed, we stand condemned before a holy God who stands ready to judge all sin in a universal fashion that no one can withstand. But the glory of the gospel is that he offers salvation, that he offers forgiveness of sins by faith in Christ. And look how beautiful it is. He not only removes our sin, but he rejoices over us with singing. So if you are a child of God this morning, if you've trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then the Lord this morning is rejoicing over you for what he has done in your life. He is rejoicing over you if you are one of his children. If you are not one of his children, come to Christ this morning. Come to Christ. He is actively at work here in Gibsonville to call out worshipers for himself. To open your eyes to show you the excellencies of Christ so that you would turn from your sin and love God and find your supreme happiness. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, you are indeed so beautiful. But Lord, the truth is that we are unable to see and to grasp your beauty as long as we, we languish in our own sins. As long as we hang on trying to suck life out of our own petty little sins, Lord, we are unable to grasp your beauty. 
so I ask this morning that your spirit would be at work in each heart here, that you would bring to faith those who still do not know you, that they would see the powerful and mighty ways that you are at work in the world, the way that you continually pour out your grace by working in hearts of people from all over the globe. Would we this morning be overcome with gratitude for how you have worked and continue to Lord, we, we truly can't thank you enough. And we ask this morning as well that you would speed ahead the work of Wycliffe Bible Translators, that you would speed ahead the work of translating your word so that the hope of the gospel would come to people who up to this point have not had access to the gospel in the language that they understand best. Lord, we, we thank you for this church, for First Baptist Gibsonville. We ask that you would continually lead them to partner with us in our ministry so that together we would participate in what you are doing in the world. So that together, through their prayers, through their giving, that you would be glorified through transformed lives. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.